everyone, my name is Chloe and welcome to a new episode of Too Hot to Handle, a shorter format of episode that brings you the hottest political news in less than 20 minutes. Big goal, right? What if I told you Oigo crisis, fast fashion, international sanctions and Europe versus China all at once? What would come to your mind? Well, recently, all of this has caused some serious turbulence, as we would say in French, in the relationship between China and Europe, which, as I'm sure you know, affects us all. But I won't tell you exactly what this is about, as we have an amazing guest today on the episode to walk us through the subtleties of these geopolitical issues that many of us aren't fully aware of. So, to discuss this, I'm very happy to welcome Shada Islam to the podcast. Shada is a very well-known Brussels-based specialist on European affairs, who works independently as a commentator, advisor, analyst and strategist on Europe, Africa, Asia, geopolitics, trade, migration, inclusion, diversity and women's empowerment. Thank you so much for being here today, Shada. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you very much, Chloe, for having me on this podcast. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Um, well, let's dive in because this is a fairly big and sometimes complicated topic. Can you describe us what happened last week between the EU and China? So what happened last week was really interesting and I think quite important from the geopolitical point of view because the EU and China uh, exchanged tit-for-tat sanctions over allegations on Europe's side of mistreatment of Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province. And on China's side, it's claimed that several European parliamentarians and institutions, policy and think tanks were disseminating what they call lies and fake news about the treatment of Uyghurs in China. So it was quite a hot potato. And mixed into this, of course, is the fact that the United States is engaged in what they call extreme geopolitical competition with China. So it's a triangle, if you like, of countries, regions, trying to show that they are the biggest, the best, and the most powerful in this world. Now, China uh, was subjected to EU sanctions way back in 1989 over the Tiananmen Square protests and their clamping down by China over that. So for the last few years, this kind of action has not been taken by the EU. And, Chloe, this is the first time that China has retaliated immediately against the EU. So it shows that China is not willing to sit back and take these kinds of sanctions and restrictions and, if you like, public admonitions from the EU. It's a very, very different game from years ago when China was still a poor developing country and seeking to make its impact on the global stage. So I'm following this very, very closely because, of course, it has a great deal to do with the way our world is being, in a sense, uh, reordered uh, post-Trump and during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the explanation. That's very clear. You mentioned that this all came from um, allegations of um, abuses of Uyghur. What is a sanction concretely in diplomacy and geopolitics like what does it mean does it have a real impact or is it kind of more you know showing off and saying we sanction you it's a bit of everything it's a mixed pot uh, really a mixed pot and a bit of everything that you've said comes into this very sort of let's say complicated and complex story so sanctions are a way for countries whether it's european or the united states which use sanction the most to show their disapproval, their anger at actions or policies 
in other countries. So often sanctions are imposed over allegations of human rights abuses, whether it's Russia, Myanmar, most recently over the uh, coup uh, and the killing, the massacre of innocent civilians that's taking place. And in the case of China, over allegations of the mistreatment of Uyghurs, Muslim minority in the Xinjiang province. Now, there is a bit of uh, showing off uh, because it shows that there is an imbalance, imbalance in the power relationship between countries. So, as I said, normally you have uh, so far, I have to say, Western countries uh, sanctioning, reprimanding, taking countries to task from the global south. And as I said, this is about the first time that I remember uh, where a developing country, an emerging country, a powerful country with China is a mix of all of these, has actually uh, reacted and reacted very quickly and in a manner which has actually surprised the European Union. Because you could say that some of their uh, sanctions are actually um, rather disproportionate to what the EU was uh, planning and what the EU has done. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to ask you if they were proportionate, um, but you already answered. Do, from your experience, do sanctions actually have an impact? Do they change things on the ground, or is, does it stay like in a drawer somewhere and and yeah, don't really impact the situation on the ground? So I should have said this, and I'm going to explain now that sanctions come in different shapes and sizes, if you like. So in the good old or good old bad days or bad old days, um, sanctions were blanket sanctions. So countries, the trade with that country, human rights allegations mixed up with trade, with economics, with investments, also with uh, humanitarian aid, development cooperation. So when a country in the bad old days was sanctioned, say, by the European Union, it put a halt to a lot of its interaction with that country and in some cases also banned exports of European products to that country, including, I have to say, in many cases, in the case of China and Myanmar in the past, of European weapons and arms to that country. So that was the way it was done. In recent uh, months, the EU has adopted what we call um, a kind of a Magnitsky Act, which is an act that was actually legislation in the United States and that the EU has emulated, which is really about um, sanctioning only, uh, but importantly, the people, uh, the actual personalities who are accused of having committed these human rights and other humanitarian crimes. And so the allegations um, of human rights is not just across the board now, not blanket condemnation, but individuals are res made responsible. So in the case of China now, uh, it's I think about five uh, officials. Uh, do they actually have an impact? Yes, because what the EU is saying now is imposing a travel ban on these people. So I'm not sure they wanted to travel here, but China has also imposed a travel ban on the members of parliament that it has sanctioned. And these uh, uh, wonderful people have and do go to China quite, quite often. So that will have an impact. And the second move will not have an impact on Europe or the Chinese, which is about the ban on their assets in, in these countries. So. At the moment, I would say, let's wait and see. I don't see immediate repercussions of these sanctions, but they do actually become operational. They do actually have mm -hmm. an impact. Uh, I'll give you a very quick example. You know, a lot of Chinese uh, officials, especially senior officials, send their children to universities and school in the West. 
Well, if they plan to do so, and if they've been sanctioned uh, under the current uh, actions, then they won't be able to do so because the sanctions apply to the individual, but also their families. Yeah, that's a very concrete example. Thanks for that. Um, we've been talking about the Uyghur situation for quite a while now. Um, there were some MEPs last year that did a huge awareness raising job to make this a front uh, forefront issue in the media, on social media, uh, calling out brands, calling out the Chinese government. And we've even seen that the US and Canada have taken actions, uh, not necessarily sanctions, but economic actions uh, already at the end of last year. Why do you think it took so long for, for the EU to react to that? And in that case, in the form of um, sanctions against some Chinese officials? Because the EU is not a country, uh, it needs to get all its 27 member states on board. So a lot of internal consultations go on before any action is taken uh, together. So they have been talking about these uh, planned sanctions or restrictions, if you like, for some time now in internal meetings. The second point is, of course, you also need to verify. You need to make sure that you have a legal case because um, people who are sanctioned, uh, if you like, uh, can take the EU to court, uh, question these measures. So they were building up what they call a strong legal case. And I think the third point really is um, pressure from public opinion, from civil society, from non-governmental organizations, uh, pressing the EU to take such action, despite, and I have to say, despite its very strong economic links with China, because our trade and investment flows over our exports and our daily bread and butter really comes from China. We export about 1.5 billion euros worth of goods every year to China. So our growth and our jobs, our economic um, recovery, our economic uh, situation is very dependent on trade with China. So this is now a new, um, a new, if you like, instrument which allows us, in a sense, unless of course this becomes much more of a, much more of a conflict, which allows us under the current situation to keep trading and uh, our investments flows uh, flowing to China, but also then target the, the individuals who allegedly are uh, are committing these human rights violations. Mm, that makes a, a good link to my. Next question, which is a bit about the potential hypocrisy from Europe. So, um, you, you know, there's more and more discussions about Europe's own abuse of human rights, Europe's systemic racism, thanks to the work of incredible racial justice activists who are really calling out Europe on its past, its present action, its lack of actions on diversity, on inclusivity, on human rights. And so I guess it, this might be a question that some people are wondering is, does Europe really have any credibility when it comes to policing other countries on human rights when it doesn't necessarily seem, especially right now with the rise of far-right political parties, it doesn't really seem to have its own house in order? So this is something that is very important uh, and which I think the European Union uh, recognizes and says so publicly that they do need, and I think there's general recognition here, uh, thanks to people like yourselves and others, uh, the hashtag Black Lives Matter and Brussels So White campaigns, there is recognition that there are very strong shortcomings uh, in, in the European Union, that racism, institutional racism is rife. But the thing is, um, the European Union recognizes that and is also taking action 
in, in, in several ways to counteract that, to counter that, to build uh, what uh, we uh, are hoping will be a union of equality. Um, and it is a democracy. So if there are um, mis, uh, missteps and carrying out of, of justice, people do have recourse. People can, do can go to the courts and they can actually question and challenge uh, the EU, whether it's Frontex, whether it's uh, EU policies on rule of law, countries are being taken to court over their uh, treatment of journalists. Um, I'm talking about countries like Hungary and Poland. So there is recourse, there is, um, there is accountability within our system in the European Union. Whereas in many other countries um, where, are, where there are these uh, human rights abuses, there is no recourse. Um, and I think that's an argument that the EU can use when it's confronting uh, countries like Myanmar or China or even Russia. The EU recognizes that it has shortcomings in democratic standards, but is doing something about it, is working towards it. And people have the right to express their concerns and to make their complaints publicly without really fearing government reaction. This is not the case in many countries. Of course, absolutely. Um, I have a final question, which is a bit less about the policy, but a bit more about the brands, because they are very much in the middle of this whole situation, especially the fashion brands that source a lot of their cotton from the Xinjiang province um, and who have been targeted in the past by these awareness raising campaigns. And so in parallel to the sanctions, some big fast fashion brands have said that they would stop using cotton from the Xinjiang province. Uh, once again, which is linked to the Uyghur forced labor. And in retaliation, China has organized a nationwide boycott of these brands. So asking, uh, you know, their consumers not to purchase from these brands, etc. So some of them in that light of that situation have already backtracked from the commitments and they have removed any mention of forced labor or slavery from their website. So Zara is a good example, for instance. What do you think... Like, where do they stand, these brands? What is, their margin of, what is their margin of action? And essentially, what does this show about the power that China has on European brands? Because a lot of these, fa these fashion brands are actually European companies. So I think it shows the power of consumers in the European Union, the power of civil society, of people noting what's happening uh, uh, and the human rights uh, abuses and violations of rights, labor rights, forced labor, and all those other allegations, noting that and deciding that they are going to step up the pressure on brands like Zara, H&M, and Adidas, and others. On the other hand, so you also have the power of civil society in China as well. Now, you said China has uh, is instigating this uh, boycott of, of uh, Western companies. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's also civil society in China. China. It's also the consumers. They are very powerful. They are very rich. Uh, they have a lot of disposable income and they can decide um, that they will not buy products from these companies. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think there's, there's a tremendous power in consumers. But at the same time, when you see that brands are so quick to backtrack when they feel the pressure um, from such a huge market like China, um, and that, as you said, has a lot of uh, economic spending, then it kind of gives you mixed feelings. You know, it's like, well, great, they seem to be responding to the pressure of consumers who had ethical concerns. But then whenever they feel the threat of their products not being sold in China anymore, all the ethical commitments are just gone, vanished. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a mixed feeling, I think. <laughs> 
Well, uh, let me just correct that as well, Chloe. I don't think their ethical commitments can go away. I think what they're doing is uh, working very hard to try and uh, reclaim their uh, reputation, if you like, within China. Um, in this globalized world, I mean, what they have to do and that they will have to do, I can assure you, is make sure that they uh, keep to their commitments uh, when it comes to dealing with the European Parliament, which, as you know, will is, is doing a lot of work on supply chains, on making sure that labor rights are respected through the supply chain. So they may be uh, trying to salvage their reputation among Chinese consumers, but I can assure you that they cannot go back uh, to ignoring uh, labor laws and forced labor across the world. So whether or not I haven't seen they take off any um, comments or any commitments from their websites in, in, in China to reassure Chinese customers, they cannot change the rules and regulations. They will have to play ball and they will have to respect uh, labor rights across mm. the, the supply chain. Everything is so transparent now, uh, they can't afford to uh, mis, um, uh, mislead consumers everywhere. Yeah, let's let's hope so. Um, thank you so much, Shara, for joining us on this episode. And thank you for explaining the situation so clearly. And yeah, hopefully we'll have you again on the podcast very soon. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure, Chloe.